The tenth plague, the plague of uh, the death of the firstborn, is uh, unique among all the plagues. So we dealt with the nine first for a reason. Is because the tenth is singular. It's by itself. If you were um, to step back and then approach this account uh, in a very different way, as though it was... um, a pattern of God's judgment on the world. It is a sort of apocalyptic. It's a little bit apocalyptic. You have this season, these nine uh, plagues of uh, growing tribulation followed at last by the wrath of God. That is a little bit how, how the plagues can be seen, is the tenth plague is really a plague of judgment. Uh, the other ones are kind of seeking seeking to... Uh, compel, and then the tenth one, the strong arm of the Lord just does it. And there's several ways that it's unique, um, and we're going to look at that this morning. The first thing I would draw your attention to is the fact that the plague of the firstborn is the only plague that is distinctly anticipated in the scriptures. What I mean is the Lord never said to Moses, you're going to go to Egypt and... Uh, you're going to make it dark, or hail's going to come from the sky, or there'll be a plague of animals or locusts. That He never said that. He said, you're going to go and Pharaoh won't listen, and I'll multiply my wonders to you. It was just very generic. But he does actually mention the plague of the firstborn in the fourth chapter, and I'll, I'll read it. You can just listen. But in the fourth chapter, this is as Moses is on his way back from, from the wilderness towards Egypt, the Lord says this in verse 21, And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I've put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So the Lord gives Moses an anticipation of what the end will look like. Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you. I'm going to harden his heart, and it's going to to end up with this plague of the firstborn son. Another thing that's unique about this plague is the way it is reiterated. It's absolutely unique. And so far, all the way up, there's a, a basic resonance with the earlier plagues of the Lord saying he's going to do something, and then he does it. So the Lord says to Pharaoh through Moses, right, let my people go. Pharaoh says no. I mean, this rhythm is just a classic rhythm in the plague. Let my people go. I won't let your people go. This is what the Lord will do. And then the Lord does it, and it just goes through that rhythm. Not so with this plague. This plague uh, is spoken about, just in clarity, Chapter 11, which you heard read earlier, that's the first time that Moses tells Pharaoh that in the 11th chapter. And then in the 12th chapter, 12 verses 1 through 13, this is the Lord telling Moses and Aaron the details of the plague. And then 14 through 20 is the Lord sharing with Moses and Aaron the details of the memorial of the plague or the Passover. So it's, It's Moses tells Pharaoh, then God tells Moses, and then God tells Moses, 
about the ceremony. Hey, this also will be a sacred assembly for generations and generations to come. So that's three, but we're not even done yet. Then Moses goes and tells the elders about the plague, and then the Lord does it. And then the Lord returns and gives Moses more details about the memorial. And then Moses goes to the people and gives them details about the memorial. Seven times, seven times here in the 11th, 12th, and into the 13th chapter is this plague or the Passover itself reiterated or revisited, which is unique among the others. And there's one other thing that is unique about the plague. What I want to do is I want to read uh, the first 13 verses of chapter 12, which you've, you've heard read again. I'm going to read them slowly. I want you to uh, just be with the scripture as I read it and, uh, and listen. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintels of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, not with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, there's one really other unique thing about this plague that shows up in the text, and that is that the Lord requires that the Israelites would do something in this plague. That's never occurred before. Early on, the Lord didn't make a distinction. So the blood, the Nile turning to blood, frogs, nets, not so much distinction. But then the Lord begins to make a distinction. Once it starts to get to harm, we, made, we talked about that last Sunday, the Lord begins to make a distinction between his children and the Egyptians. 
And so that the plagues that begin to come on the land of Egypt fall on everyone but the land of Goshen, where the Israelites resided. There, they were immune from the plague. And that begins the trend from the fourth plague, from four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, fall on Egypt, but not on the land of Goshen. When it hails, it hails on Egypt. But it says, but no hail fell in the land of Goshen. When the livestock perished through the plague, they perished throughout the land, but none of the animals in the land of Goshen with the Israelites perished. But here we find in this 12th plague that the Lord turns to the Israelites and says, you actually have to do something if you want to escape my judgment. In other words, when the Lord comes through to judge Egypt, he will judge Egypt, Jew and Egyptian, the same, unless they do something. says they have to put blood on the doors. Actually, they have to do a lot of things. Let's not just summarize it with blood on the doors. This is what he says. You have to take a lamb. You have to make sure this lamb is a one-year-old male without blemish. This lamb needs to be appropriately sized for your family. Not too much, but certainly not too little. You want to have enough that everyone can partake, but you don't want to have so much that there's tons left over. Be appropriate with the kind of lamb you take. You need to take it, and take it on the 10th day, but on the weight Live with this lamb until the 14th day, on which day that's when you would kill this. You kill this lamb, and then from the blood of that lamb, you put it on the doorposts and on the lintels. And then it says, and then you roast this lamb, and it gives specifications for how it's roasted. And you eat this lamb, and you eat this lamb entirely. You don't leave anything left over. And if there is a little bit left over, you make sure you burn it out. This lamb cannot be wasted. All of that has to be done. What does it mean that the people have to participate? I mean, we'd say this. I, I certainly don't want anybody thinking, I'm, I'm sitting up here talking like that the Israelites were justified by their labors. This is not a theology of works. Doing this, this doesn't qualify as a work so much in the sight of the Lord. This isn't like Hercules having to do these Herculean tasks in order to prove himself valid or worthy of an honor. This is, this is a, the kind of thing, it's, it's what you would call an act of faith. This is a small thing that demonstrates to the Lord that you believe him. You believe he's coming, you believe he has the power to do it, and you believe he is going to do it, and you obey. In other words, if we desire the Lord to pass over, he requires from us a response, a faithful response. We must respond in faith to the Lord. You have to respond. I mean, this morning, right, right before, in the front end of worship, Jesus says, this, this observance is me. He breaks the bread. This is my body given to you. The blood poured out for you, the blood of the new covenant. I'm here to say, we have to respond to the promise of salvation. It is not innocuous. Jesus doesn't die on the cross and all of a sudden everyone is saved. It is not innocuous. It requires a response from every person. Every person needs to have the blood on the doors and the lintel posts of their soul, their spirit. When the Lord looks down, when the Lord is looking, he's looking for people who have faithfully responded, who believe that God is the judge of the world, the Lord of all the earth who believe that God cares 
and that he will come and judge. We have to respond to that. And they do. They put the blood up on the walls. The, the, the Hebrews are obedient in this case. You have to do this. Now, the Lord requires from us a response. Not a response as though we earn salvation, but a response as though we believe him and we respond in his direction. The question is, what does this participation with the Lord gain us? What is, what is the result of this participation with the Lord? Let me, let me show you. Look at chapter 12, verses 29 uh, to 32. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone had not died, was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people both you and the people of Israel. And go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone. And bless me also. I never know how to read that. It's, uh, and bless me also? Uh, I think what it is, this is a sidebar, but I think what it is, you've, you ever see on the news, um, we seem to have no lack of, of these examples of a, of a congressman who, or a notable person, a politician, who is caught in the act. So every consultant they have, every consultant in D.C. ring says, deny it. Because they always do. And we as the news viewers know, it's probably true. But they deny it, and they deny it, and they deny it, and they deny it, and then details come out, and 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 they deny it. It's so obvious it happened, and finally they give you the I'm sorry speech. But you know, they're not really sorry. Or they're sorry they got caught, or this was the advice of a consultant to say we need to shift our strategy. Same with the disciplining a child. I need you to pick up your toys. I don't want to pick up my toys. So you start with convincing Please pick up your toys. The room's messy. We talked about this already. I don't want to pick. I don't pick up my toys. I don't pick. So then you start to kind of ratchet up your response. So you start to warn and threaten. And then you eventually coerce the child to pick up toys, either through pain or, I don't know, other ways. I like the first one. But then they finally obey. And it's not, un- I remember this even to myself, it's not unheard of in our coerced obedience to still try to salvage some kind of righteousness out of it. It's like, it's like Pharaoh here. He's been, he has been kicked all the way to the wall and he's like, fine, you can go. You're welcome. <laughs> You're very Welcome. What, are you not going to bless me? I think that's what's happening here. But, but to the issue, to, to the back to the heart of the issue, we said you have to respond. You, you, we have to respond. I mean, think what he asked, what he asked the Hebrews to do. He said, I want you to select out this goat or this sheep, a lamb, 
take it in. I mean, think about it. Think about what you know about Jesus, that you know he's the Passover lamb, that you know it's his blood, his blood on our doors that offers us salvation. You knowing that, if you could go back in time and, and to this very moment and take this lamb and stare at it for four days, knowing in four days I have to put my hands on that lamb and cut it, cut its throat and drain its blood. What does that say to us about our participation in the death of Christ? We have to respond. And so we respond, right? We, we put the blood up and we eat the food and we're doing all of this. What did it buy us? Well, will you look here and you, the first and obvious thing that this earns us, this participation in the obedience of the Lord, this, this faithful response to his command of, if you want your life to be spared, cover your home with this blood. What we see is it works. That's the first thing we see. We see that those who put the blood on their door frames avoided death, and those who did not put the blood on their door frames did not escape the hand of death. That's the first thing we see. And that's usually where we stop. We usually focus on the pass over, the fact that God passed over or skipped is kind of the Hebrew. The fact that God skipped over your house, that's typically where we focus. But there's something else that happened, something else that's, that is just as important that happened here in this text that sometimes goes missed. Not only did the Lord pass them over, but the Lord freed them from Egypt. In the same, in the same moment, the same strong arm of the Lord that passes over the Hebrew people is the same strong arm of the Lord that coerced and defeated Pharaoh. I'm saying it's, not, it's incomplete it's incomplete in your faith if you think of your faith as when I die, I will not go to hell or when I die, I will go to heaven. That is half the story. The other half of the story is the Lord has now saved you from the slavery of sin and death. You are free. You are now free. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not simply, when we die, we go to heaven. That's half the gospel. And it begins to sound trite and glib when it's all of your gospel. It's a consumer attitude. The full gospel of Jesus Christ is because you rely on the pure, unblemished, perfect blood of Jesus Christ to stand and represent your home. God has not seen what we've done or chosen to pass over what we've done and has spared our life. And in addition to sparing our life, he has done the glorious thing, which is to free us from the bondage of sin and death, to loose us from the binds of Pharaoh, to bring us into a new land, give us a new life and offer us a new hope. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that gospel is for now. The gospel of Jesus passed me over, or the Lord passed me over because of the blood of Christ, that is the gospel that I will embrace one day. But the gospel I embrace now is I am no longer serving Pharaoh. I serve the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And you see it here. You see Pharaoh saying, go. Up, go up and out from among my people. Get out. In other words, the Lord doesn't simply get Pharaoh to, to let us go. The Lord gets Pharaoh to a point of begging us to go. The victory is complete. You see it in the ceremony itself, what the Lord asks them to do. We focus on the blood on the doorframe. 
out of all that I read, I think there is as much or more attention paid to how the lamb is dealt with inside the home as there is to the blood on the doorframe. In other words, our notion, I typically think, I typically think with Passover, the thought of the Lord passing us over of, of because of the death of Christ, we have, we have this hope that we will not receive judgment, but in fact receive mercy. That, that element seems to stand out in, in the, just the tradition of the church even from this moment. But if you read the text, if you read the scriptures, even if you follow how the Passover meal evolved through the years, the focus was on the lamb inside the home. In other words, there's two things happening here with the lamb. One sense of what's happening with the lamb is that the lamb is being cut and the blood is being spilled and the blood of the unblemished lamb is marking the house as though it is covered. The lamb is serving as a substitute for the death that would otherwise take place in the home. That's the first thing that's happening. The second thing that's happening, which is as important to the Lord, is that the lamb is being consumed by the family in the house. The lamb is being put into us. It's being given to us. This is is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That is the heart of the Lord's Supper, isn't it? Eat, feast on me. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, unless... You drink of my blood and feast of my body. You have no part with me, is what he says. In other words, there's two things happening here. One is that the blood of Christ is serving as a right substitute for our sin and our death. The other thing that's happening is the body of Christ is being given to us. We are being filled with the body of Christ. And that is, that's a way of giving us life. Why? Because as just as the 12th chapter began, because the Lord says, because today is a new day in the rest of your life. I'm resetting your calendar today. Everything is new, and you will live on me from now on. Is, is, should it be any mystery at all to us that this image of feasting on the lamb and of having the life on the lamb brings the people across the, across the great sea to a land where the Lord then feeds them with manna? year after year after year so that they might know that man does not live on bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of the living God. Do you see the consistency in the idea? The idea is the Lord is springing us, springing us from death and also saving us from the slavery of sin and he's doing that by infilling us with him. The whole gospel is right here. But you have to respond It is not innocuous. So I'm going to ask a question that I have asked many times along the way in my walk and that I assume somebody here is asking, which is this. I believe in Jesus. I believe that his blood is on the door frames of my life. I believe that when I die, I will see him in glory, but I do not feel the victory of salvation in my life right now. It's as though the Lord passed you over but didn't take you out. You feel that way sometimes? Usually those who feel that way feel that way all the time. Whether it's addiction or idolatry or 
the, the idea of joy seems like this enigmatic, difficult thing for you to find. Where we have a faith and a belief that God has saved us from death, but we don't have the victory as though, as though Pharaoh has released us. I understand this keenly. So I'll ask you a few questions. If this is you. If this isn't you, you're probably related to somebody who experiences this, so receive it, receive it with a pastor's heart. The first question I would ask someone who believes they're saved but doesn't believe they're free is, are you sure the blood on your door is the blood of Christ? And I ask that because very often with people, especially people who, whose journey to Jesus is because of their hatred of slavery to some kind of sin, very often they have gotten very good at striving in their own might for freedom. They assent and agree with the moral virtue of what God is saying, and they tell themselves, it's right. It's exactly right. This is what I need to do. And they work themselves. They work and they work. And I, I just want to know for some of you, is it possible that you've put your blood on the doorframe? That you've thought, what I'll do is I will be good enough so as to therefore justify the freedom that God offers me. And I'm here to say that is not possible. The blood on the doorframe must be perfect blood from a lamb without blemish. Without blemish. It can have no sin resident in it. There's not a person in this room who shares that kind of bloodstream. We have had to be adopted into that bloodline. We cannot put our blood on the doorframe. We cannot, through our own striving and effort and attempts to get over something, or we cannot spring our own freedom. Satan is tougher than me, but Jesus is tougher than Satan. That's the first question I would ask you. The second question I would ask you, if you don't feel the victory, is do you really want to leave Egypt? Are you sure you want to leave? We, we all want to go to heaven, but I'm not sure we all want to leave Egypt. The Hebrew people in about a week are going to say exactly that. Nice job, Moses. We could be eating steak back in Egypt. That's what they're pretty much going to say in about a week. Is your distaste of slavery, slavery to sin, momentary in relation to your overarching desire for it? So I want to I ask you, If you saw all the Hebrew people leaving, would you look back? Would you get lonely? To that point, maybe another way of asking it is, do you have an appetite for Christ? 
This is the other side of this sign that's given to them, right? The first side of the sign is the blood on the doorframe. The second side of the sign is taking the lamb in the house, roasting it and consuming it, taking all of it in, receiving it as though this is what will nourish me for the journey. My sandals are on, my belt is buckled, the staff is in my hand, and the last meal I have for the rest of, to lean into the rest of my life is the body of Christ. That's what I'm given. Do you have an honest appetite for the Christ. Listen, I know there are many people, many, and this is where I have experience of hating my sin, hating it enough to create a temporary void in my life and thinking that I'm done. Ah, I have eradicated it. You haven't eradicated anything because the void weighs just as much as the sin does. You, This void is a void in your person that is crying out to be validated. It still needs to be validated. If you pull the sin out, now all you, now you, this voice in you is crying out in this chasm, this echoing chasm going, who am I now? What validates me now? That void needs to be filled with Jesus or something else will fill it. That void sucks in things. And this is where the point is not just that we, we cut out or amputate the sin in our life. This is where we are made into a new person by eating Jesus. He's saying, listen, I'm not trying to adjust you. I'm not going to cut that off. I'm saying you need to be transformed with the renewing of your mind into a whole new person. Do you have appetite? For the Lord. I can imagine many, I can imagine many a day in my own life where I would have faithfully had the blood on the doorpost, but inside the house, rather than eating the lamb, I'd eat cheese puffs or some other cheap, sad, vulgar excuse for the feast of Christ. That I he's substituting for me outside, and I'm eating a substitution for him inside. The gospel is. You must know that only I can save, and you must want me. You must want me. C.S. Lewis once said, I don't think anybody in hell actually wants to be in heaven. You want to want the Lord. Is the blood on your doors yours? Do you want to leave? Do you have an appetite for Jesus? A ravenous appetite for Jesus is the cure to all kinds of evils. All kinds of evils. A church body that is always interested in problem solving is getting no closer to an appetite for Christ. How-to sermons, how-to books, those things create voids. Jesus Christ fills voids. An appetite for Jesus is what satisfies the soul and what cures and heals the sick. There is, we have no plan B. There's no derivative of the gospel that does anything but confuse. If you say to me, well, it's his blood on the door and I desperately want to leave and I feast on the Lord, I love Jesus to the capacity that I can honestly know myself. I wake up and I say, Jesus, I want you more today than yesterday. And yet I still feel at times like Pharaoh has his hold on me. I want to encourage you. I, I can only encourage you with this. My grace is sufficient. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. 
That at the end of the day, Jesus says, you just need to trust that what I have sown perishable, I will raise imperishable. You just need to trust that one day, one day you will be in a broad and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land where I have totally eradicated the enemy and it is a perfect and suitable land. I, the Lord, will bring you there. You just need to trust that and have holy patience and say, until then, Lord, I will feast on the manna that you give me. Thy will be done. In a moment, we're going to pray. We're going to sing a song. And it's your opportunity to respond to the Lord. This is the truth about the gospel. This is the truest truth about the gospel. You need to respond to it. Jesus Christ offers the salvation for all mankind. Universal. You have to put the blood on the doorframe. You have to desire him. And that is where we find our hope. Is that you? Is that half of you? Where are you? Thinking someone's just a great person. I mean, I don't mean this in in an apologetic way. I'm not trying to make this intellectual. I'm just saying I am certain that there were many Israelites who had respect for their Egyptian neighbors, who did not have the blood on the door, and those people suffered loss. We must, must respond to Jesus Christ. Amen, let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are good and great and mighty, and you're loving, Lord. I can only imagine as the Passover is transpiring how you and the Father must have looked at one another knowing what it was prefiguring, what one day you would do on our behalf, Lord. That in your word even you say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever would believe, whoever would respond would not perish but have eternal life, Lord. I pray that. I pray that for each person here. I pray that for our loved ones for whom we pray daily. I lift up, Lord, I lift up the person in this room who has for years and years, maybe decades, lifted, prayed for or lovingly sought you out on the soul of a loved one or a neighbor or relative, Lord. I pray for them. I, I lift them up on behalf of you. I pray that you might, you might soften hearts, Lord. If you harden hearts, maybe you soften hearts. Certainly we can pray for that, Lord. Lift up our neighbors, so many of whom do not know you, Give us a love for them, Lord. Help us through our affection for you to have an enduring and growing affection for others so that we might not be a cold group of saved people, Lord, but a fully loving community of Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.